Morning, everyone. I thought I was on safe ground this morning to use an illustration from my childhood and blame my parents, but my parents turned up. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm still going to use it because I can't think of another alternative. I don't know about you, but parents can be cruel sometimes, can't they? <laughs> that ends my sermon. No. <laughs> they can be. They can be. How, how, how dare they dash the hopes of a little seven-year-old boy? I'm, I'm just guessing it's seven, but I was young and impressionable. And the, and the call by my mother to say, Darren and Sarah, you know, we're going to go to the American Adventure Park this day, this weekend. Wow. You know, I was, I was there, I was thinking, wow. You know, what better thing can you say to a seven-year-old boy than you're going to go to the American Adventure Park? You know, that theme park, which is probably closed down now because nobody wanted to go. But we wanted to go, and I wanted to go. And we got in the car, we got... And we, and we drove down the road. We drove up the motorways. We, we got there. I could see the fence. We weren't quite sure whether we wanted to go in. Well, when we said we, the parents weren't quite sure. And the hopes of a little seven-year-old boy were dashed as we turned the car around and carried off to go somewhere else. I think it might have been Alton Towers. But by the time we got there, it was too late, and so we didn't bother doing that either. <laughs> parents can be so cruel sometimes. I've forgiven her, but the wounds are still there. But I don't mind journeys. I don't mind those long journeys at the motorway to go to theme parks because of the theme park at the end of it, isn't it? That I was excited I could get there. But when I got there, my hopes were dashed because I couldn't enter into the American Adventure Park. And um, our family, Jim and the kids, you know, we, we've had privilege to go and use a cottage in Wales. And once uh, we got, well, not, not quite halfway there, but we realised we got a fair distance and realised we hadn't got the key to the cottage. Had we carried on another two hours or, or an hour and a half, our hopes would have been dashed when we couldn't have got into this cottage. Because it's a beautiful one, you know, log fire and all that kind of business. And here this morning, though, we have a journey of expectation. But here, instead of hopes being dashed, not being able to go in, we have a psalmist who is rejoicing. We have David who is rejoicing because his feet, it says, standing within the gates. He's been promised a great ending to his journey. And unlike my mother who didn't deliver, God delivers. Okay, we see that this is a song of ascent. There's a, uh, there's a few interpretations of what that actually means, but it's one a group of 15 psalms. And by and large, the general... Uh, thought is that it's songs sung by uh, those pilgrims going to Jerusalem uh, to worship God at the temple. Well, we see this pilgrim's arrival. I want to understand and feel the gladness of this arrival for this pilgrim. If we're going to sing this song with him, which is as we should, this is why it's here, well, then we need to know and feel that gladness. Well, we look at verses 1 to 2, and I've, I've titled this, The Wonder of Within. You see, there's no greater invitation to, this, uh, to David. He rejoiced with those who said to me, and this is the invitation, let us go to the house of the Lord. That was his destination, not a theme park, but something far greater. He says, let's go to the house of the Lord. 
This is going to the place where God dwells. This is going to the place where people can meet with the living God without being consumed by fire to be, uh, come face to face with the Lord God Almighty knowing that they can come and just worship. How exciting is that invitation? Let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, for some it is exciting. Because we know it's that place where the sacrifice happened. Was that, that, um, that propitiation, that, that removal of sin that we could actually stand in front of God when we go to Jerusalem. He knows that it is a good thing to go. Essentially, in a nutshell, this is the gospel message, isn't it? Let us go to the house of the Lord. Come, come with me and I'll show you where you can meet with God without being consumed with his wrath. Wow, what an invitation. But we need to feel that measure of gladness, only considering where we've come from. You know, I think you hear the stories of great athletes, Olympians, perhaps, where their gold medal is all the more sweeter from where they've come from and the adversity which they've had to endure to get to that place. You know, our attitude to coming home from a holiday is a lot different than our attitude coming home from, um, from a visit in hospital. We so much look forward to where we're coming to because of where we've come from. And so this psalm doesn't sit alone. This, like I say, is part of this uh, psalm, uh, Songs of Ascent. These begin at Psalm 120. And what we have, we have a slight direction towards Jerusalem. We have, in 120, you can glance at it at your leisure, but we have the psalmist there in distress because he's not in Jerusalem. One, two, one, we have this journey where he's asking for God uh, to keep him. We'll have a quick look at 120. It starts with, I called on the Lord in my distress. It comes from a very dark place. And for us, distress may come in many forms. I know we've heard this morning of uh, the passing of Monica. You know, death brings distress to people, loss of loved ones. Struggling to get a job, that brings distress. Perhaps your finances aren't too good and you're worried about losing your home, that brings distress, doesn't it? Well, this guy is in distress. And he tells us why. Further down, he says, Woe to me that I sojourn, or I I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell amongst the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling, uh, dwelling among those who hate peace. You see, he doesn't like where he is. He realizes he's in distress, and he doesn't want to stay there. Too long have I stayed here. It's about time I turned elsewhere. And you see in what Psalm 121, the next psalm, you see the psalmist saying, I lift my eyes to the hills. You see, there's something beyond his immediate distress. There's something which is beyond which he wants. You get that picture where he looks at the hills, and he thinks, there is something greater. But you can imagine him looking beyond that to the, to the heavens and the skies and thinking there's something greater than that. And perhaps his thoughts and hearts goes to the maker who created them. Out of his distress, where do I want to go? And you see the psalmist yearning for the Lord. Where does my help come from? 
My help comes from the Lord, it says in Psalm 121. You see, it's all the more sweeter, though, as we look back to 122, that the way that it's let us and they... Have a look at uh, the opening um, verses again. I rejoice with those. I rejoiced with people, okay? I with, uh, with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. You see, it's not an individual pursuit. It's not something that you set off alone to do. But the gladness which comes is is more sweeter because it's done with like-minded, like-hearted pilgrims. Those who know that there is something better. that, That out of my distress, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Where do I find the Lord? Well, you find the Lord in Jerusalem. The first part of Isaiah has 120 uh, themes running through it. Psalm 120 themes running through it. It's, it begins near the um, in Psalm, t- sorry, not Psalm, Isaiah 2. It says, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. It carries on to teach us in his ways. It's a communal picture. And see, this psalm is a picture of a shared experience, but also an individual commitment. But you shouldn't separate the two. Well, finally, we, we see after this um, journey of the psalmist from 120 in distress to looking towards the hills to a, finally arriving in Jerusalem. And he is so glad and happy. This is a happy place to be. And he's astounded because he's saying that after all this journey, our feet are standing within the gates of Jerusalem. Wow, that is utterly amazing. He is, he is astounded by that. You see, because gates let people in, which is a good thing if you want to go in. But it's a bad thing if you want to go out, they keep you in. However, the fear could be that he arrives at Jerusalem and the gates are shut. Because gates keep people out too, you see. But he's astounded because he's saying, I knew of the promises... But now my feet are standing in Jerusalem. I'm within the gates. Gates keep people out, but also let people in. But where is this Jerusalem? I think we need to understand, uh, just pause a second, just understand what we mean by Jerusalem, because we might be thinking, well, hang on, I'm not in Jerusalem. Um, Do I need to go there? Do I need need to book my ticket tomorrow? How do I understand and how do I share that experience with him? And especially, it says in verse 6, that we're going to pray for Jerusalem as well. So if I'm going to pray for it, I better know what I'm talking about, what I'm praying for. Well, firstly, Jerusalem is not in the Middle East. Um, Any objections? I would object, because there is a Jerusalem in the Middle East. But the thing is, when they were talking in this psalm, what made Jerusalem important was that the temple was there. Okay? The temple made Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If the temple wasn't there, it was just another city, really. But the one seen here is a city which is not quite like the city that we see in the Middle East. And we see Jesus is a fulfillment of Jerusalem. 
We'll do a bit of work to get there, but not much. Because Jerusalem is where God dwells and where human beings, mankind, can have that meeting place with God without being consumed. Where you can go and actually worship. Well, Jesus fulfilled this in his body. And we see that the church is an anticipation of this glorious Jerusalem too. It is a recurrent reality for us, you see. What made Jerusalem important was the temple. In In 1 Corinthians 3, he describes God's people as the temple and that God's spirit lives within us. So if we were to think of it in those terms, we can say that the church is Jerusalem. Not its final uh, destination or its, its complete picture, but it's a foreshadowing. But it's a reality nevertheless. It's not just an imagery or mimic of it, but it's begun, but it's not complete. But that hints to the, the future reality of Jerusalem too. You know, the Bible just, uh, tells us of the heavenly city coming down. And it, as part of the new creation, it, it comes down where mankind can finally be with his maker with the creator God. There is a future reality to Jerusalem, a physical future reality, and a very real one. So Jerusalem is a place where God is, a a place where man can live with God. Well, this man is is in wondering how his feet can stand within the gates. You know, he heard and trusted the promises. Zechariah said this, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. You see, here's a picture of grace. He is standing there not on his own merits, but because of the promises of God. Zechariah said that God said, I will. I will save my people. I will bring them to Jerusalem. I will be faithful to them. It is all about God and what he intends for his people. So no matter what you do, you can't fashion yourself a key to unlock the gate to get into Jerusalem. No, but wonder when the gates are opened to you and you find yourself on the right side of the walls. Because that's the grace of God letting you in. But then we get to verses 3 to 5. And we see Jerusalem, an unshakable city of peace and unity. Well, the very name, Jerusalem, has roots into shalom, which means that peace, the whole wholeness of one's being. Well, you see how being in Jerusalem reaches the deepest needs. You see, we've gone from distress in Psalm 120 to gladness in 122. See, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together, it says in verse 3. I don't know what pictures come into your mind when you think of a city closely compacted together. You might think that um, Beavis Homes have got their hands on it and have tried to squeeze as many houses as they can and put a high-rise. But the thing is, unfortunately, I suppose the picture which the NIV puts is a little bit misleading because it's not a ghetto slum area where everybody is stacked up high just to get enough breathing space. But the ESV translation speaks of it as a city that is bound firmly together. Now that's the place where Jerusalem is um, described here. 
Jerusalem is a city bound firmly together. You see, he's standing there and he's seeing in Jerusalem an undivided city. A city that is solid, unshakable. But it's not talking about the housing developments. You know, I, I like a game of rugby and I expect everybody else does here too. But when, you know when they go down for a scrum, they bind together, don't they, to, to be that solid force to go forward. Well, it's a bit of a trivial illustration, but it gets across that solidity. There are, if you did a bit of word work, because I, I don't really know Hebrew at all, but there's roots to sort of companionship within those, those words. They come from, stem from the same place. But it's that binding together of people. You know, many of the world's institutions, uh, buildings can appear solid, can't they? They can appear inviting too. That we may think, oh, I'd like to go there. It seems like a nice place. I feel secure there. They're all shiny. Or they promise great things. And it's inviting, it's tempting, isn't it, in a world which offers lots of insecurities. We thought of those at the beginning about what may cause you distress. But the thing is, it's a Jerusalem where you can find that security. You see, manufacturing today, I, I, I sort of moan about it, but I, I know that the slightly older generation moan about it a little bit more. But things are far too complicated where they look at things which were made earlier on, you know, when they were younger and stuff. And, it's, and it was simple, but you could fix it yourself. Things rel- uh, relatively didn't go wrong. You know, your washing machine lasted for 30 years rather than three years and a day outside your warranty. We yearn for things which are simpler because of the security it brings us. I know that a washing machine doesn't bring security, but we know we can trust in it. There's solidity in simplicity, can I say. We trust in that, which is simple. What can be more simpler than one Lord, one faith, and one baptism? That's the basis of our faith, that we have one Lord. That we come to that one Lord with one faith. And we enter into that through one baptism. And shouldn't it be that under that banner that we should find solidarity at Abbey? That we find that bound together tightly under that banner. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Well, the next two verses give us a reason why this can be so. Firstly, it is uh, verse 4, where the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. don't know how many people know so, uh, uh, about the history of the tribes of Israel. But I think you, um, if you do, you'll know that they weren't exactly holding hands and skipping down the meadows together. They're all a fractious bunch. They felt of their own self-importance far too much. We had a division of the kingdoms where two tribes split off from uh, another ten, or the ten split off from the two. But here we've got where the tribes go up to the Lord, the tribes of the Lord, to the praise of the Lord given to the statute given to Israel. See, the point of unity in this picture was the praise of the name of the Lord. That's what brought them together, you see. They were unified in worship of God. 
That's the central place of which unity can be um, had. It was a complete, wholehearted, and humble expression of worship to God that they could stand with one another. You see, in worship of the true and living God, divisions and differences disappear. And we find this will extend not only to the tribes of Israel, but to the rest of the world, to individuals as well. Because everybody's fractious, divided, each out for their own agenda. But it's the worship of God that people are united. Secondly, unity comes under the Christ's authority. In verse 5 we read that the thrones for judgment, there the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. You see, Jerusalem is a place where Christ rules. He rules justly. He has righteous judgments. And you see, when we know of a place of justice, it lays the ground and the foundations for peace. Justice is a precursor to peace. Without justice, there is no peace. Because everybody will be out for themselves again. You know, it's... You can see it in children, you can see it in adults, but given an opportunity to just take an inch, they'll go forward a bit more and just get near the, near the, near the front of the queue or, you know, if the bell's going to ring, you, you, know, you want to get to the front of the dinner queue. But you'll be doing this, slowly inching its way forward because you want to be first. And you know what happens when you start doing this? Somebody else starts thinking, hang on, I don't want to be like that. And by, before the end of it, you're actually all running towards the dinner queue, aren't you? Trying to get there first. But this isn't the case there, you see. Christ rules justly, and we're happy in it. Well, I got annoyed, not with my parents this time, but when I was a child, when I had standard Lego, you know, the, the Lego Lego. And did you ever come across the Lego which wasn't Lego? Well, I got a mix of that in my Lego box. And when it came to building things, things just wouldn't go stick together. Things would just fall off and I couldn't understand it. And I got really angry. But the thing is, this is what the picture is, is that Christ brings together very different individuals. Different individual uh, nations and tribes. But brings them together and binds them into a solid unity. To an unshakable city that comes about when we come together in worship of the true God. And under the rule of Jesus. And then in verses 6 to 9, we have the commitment of the city dweller. You see, if we were to see uh, Jerusalem fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, um, foreshadowed in the church with the expectancy of the real, true Jerusalem, the final product to come, we live in this tension period, don't we, where, well, we are Jerusalem, but it's, it's not quite as which is described here. You know, we strive for peace. However, looking back a little bit, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, as, um, as described this, uh, by this psalmist. But he wasn't glad at all. Now, in fact, as he approached Jerusalem, Luke 19 says, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had, known, uh, had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes. That was just before he went into the temple clearing the, clearing the, uh, the cellars there. 
You know, they had tried to bring about peace. This was their Jerusalem, the Middle East variety Jerusalem. But the thing is, where they went to to actually get that peace, they compromised with the, rule, uh, with the world. In that, in that case, it was the Romans. They bent over for them just so that they can have a, a nation in, um, in Jerusalem. And the thing is also, to bring about peace, the religious establishment oppressed those who were part of God's family. They tried to bring about peace by compromise and shutting people up. Jerusalem was so far from peace, though, wasn't it? So far, in fact, Matthew 23 writes of Jesus saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. This isn't the picture of Jerusalem painted in 122, is it? You know, the vital part was mis- uh, that was missing was the rule of the king. They didn't recognize him, so he hid it from them. He was the true way to peace. But the psalmist sees this. He sees Jerusalem as a city of peace. And so it's through the eyes of faith that the psalmist recognized that this Jerusalem, which doesn't quite equate to the historical one, is about something greater. His eyes have seen the hills, and he's gone far beyond that, and he's looking into the eyes of the king. You see, from 120 to 122, we have had a dwelling in tents, his distressed dwelling in tents with others in Kadesh. But now we have Jerusalem, a strong city. You know, the difference of living within God's city, Jerusalem, amongst his people, the church, is the difference of living in tents in an arid, dry, and windy place and a city of God which is solid, firmly bound together. Well, I know that, I know that um, Karen's off camping this weekend at Gorsley, and I know that that has been an uh, on-off experience in terms of weather-wise. But the thing is... <laughs> If I said, would you like to take up a tent and go there, or shall I offer you a palace, which, is, which its walls are three metres thick. Oh, by the way, there's a big, severe wind coming. You know, you're going to go for the palace any day. That's a no-brainer. And this is what it's saying here. It's saying, oh, how glad is that message to go to the house of the Lord, to go to Jerusalem because of the safety and security there. But it goes on to say that it has security from foes, and that's the prayer uh, versus me, uh, sorry. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. It talks about walls and citadels providing that security. And we see that walls and citadels is secure from foes, from enemies outside. But also, what you'll see in these last few verses of Psalm 22 is a lot of the repetition of the word within. You see, it's more than just safety from outside, but there's a prayer here for what is inside Jerusalem. You see, the church is to be that safe place, living under grace of God and ruled by Jesus through his word. And so he's looking and he's praying for the peace within 
have a look. It says that may there be peace within your walls, verse 7. Verse 8, peace be within you. I will seek your prosperity. You see, there is a concern for influences of the outside. But there's dangers within a church as well, isn't there? That that which affects the outside may affect us within. And so we find ourselves, there are people who go against the peace that is prayed for here. And it's easy to do this, isn't it? What makes you do that? Well, that's that expression of myself again. You know that, that, that creep towards the, the canteen? You're doing that, you're putting yourself forward. You see, instead of a love for God, they have a love for themselves. It says, may those who love you, verse 6, may those who love you be secure. Those who love themselves will not offer security or peace at all. You know, it's only a love for Jesus that allows peace to flourish. Because we recognize that we are loved. That we are forgiven. That we know our place with God as our king. We know the privilege of being under his rule. And our agenda is no longer ourselves and what I can get for me. But it's a, a loving agenda for the cause of others. So in verse 7 where it says, May there be uh, peace within your walls and security within your citadels. We see protection from external assault. But we pray for protection from internal dissension, internal strife. You see, again, it's that picture of a shared experience and an individual commitment. You know, that's what church is. It's a shared experience. We can't do it on our own. And you see, this gets underlined in verses 7 and, uh, seven and 8. Uh, sorry, eight and, 8 and 9. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say peace within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God. For the sake of our brothers and companions. The psalmist is probably referring to those guys who, who invited them to go up and to those people already in, in, the, in Jerusalem. You see, we're here for the sake of others. We're, sa- we're here for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. It's the church. See how they both involve that corporate experience. And I suppose that should affect our attitude towards church and to reflect about our own attitudes as we come every morning. Do we come with that me attitude, what I can gain from it? Because here, there's no room for a me attitude for the sake of my brothers, for the sake of the church. That's what he's saying. I don't know if we have a high enough view of church, perhaps. He is so glad that his feet are within the gates of Jerusalem. Are you glad that your feet are within Abbey Church this morning? Amongst fellow believers, like-minded, like-hearted people who love to worship God, who come under the rule of Christ. Are you glad? Are you glad to be here? And if it's not, maybe that's a reflection that we are not looking out for the sake of our brothers and companions or either regarding the house of our Lord our God, the church, Well, we see and we're thankful that the church is a foreshadowing of a greater Jerusalem to come. You see, God dwells in Jerusalem and the heavenly city will come down. You see, 
our Jerusalem must be, must be centered on that mutual worship of the Lord God, on Jesus, and our love for him. Especially when we meet together, isn't it? Just to say, look, do you realize what Jesus has done for me? Yes, I do. He's done the same for me. Isn't that great? I think so. It is great. Okay, let's worship. Okay. It should be that. We should be for that mutual encouragement, surely. Because our feet are inside the gates. We have been secured by the grace of Jesus. But we must be realistic about it as well. Now, we must pray for the peace. That's what's the imperative here. Pray for Jerusalem. Pray for your church. We want to pray for that unity, that security, the prosperity of the church. Because this is what church should be. This is what church will be when the heavenly city comes down. And we must engage in seeking its good for the sake of others, not for just myself. I want to come and enjoy it, but I want others to be able to too. You know, we live in a broken world where there is a battle for our worship. It's either going to be God or something else. But remember, we come united when we come in worshipping God together. And there's a battle for our submission too, isn't it? Do we bow the knee to Christ and what he says, or do we bow the knee to what I say? Because if we start to bow the knee to what I say, and ignore Christ, well then we don't come under the rule of Christ. But we read that that justice is a precursor for peace, for that unity within church. So we have to get rid of those attitudes of me. We have to fight that battle for the worship of God, rather than other things. We need to fight for that battle to bow our knee to Christ rather than to ourselves. And so it should affect our behaviour towards one another. And do we want to make Jesus known? Because people will be glad when we invite others and say, let us go to the house of the Lord. It is that gospel call to say, come and meet with God. And we do that when we invite people to meet with him, with those fellow believers who are eager and keen and uh, uh, loving the Lord. Well, there will be a day when the eyes of faith, which the psalmist writes, will no longer be needed. And that's the time when we will rejoice because Jesus will be with us. We will see him for uh, who he is. And we will experience everything that this psalmist promised and looks forward to. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus who secures us within the gates of Jerusalem. That we are amongst your people who love God who love to worship and love to come under your authority and bow the knee to the King Jesus. We thank you that as we do that, we will know peace and security and prosperity. Help us, Lord, with our wicked hearts, which would so many times think of myself rather than you. Heavenly Father, forgive us, we pray, and help us by your Spirit to love one another, to seek the good of one another for the sake of our brothers and companions, for the sake of your church, Lord, for the sake of your holy name. We thank you for Jerusalem. We thank you for the, the security and peace that's within. We pray we may experience more of this as a church on earth. 
But Heavenly Father, we look further and beyond to when Jesus Christ returns, where we will dwell with you in that reality of that new city, that new heavenly city of Jerusalem, where the King Jesus perfectly reigns, where peace is known by everyone. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for that wonderful promise. Help us, help it to affect and change our hearts and minds this day. Amen. We're going to stand to sing our final song, Lord of the Church.